to, lots of parties and things that have happened or are happening. But what I want to tell you before this magical day of Christmas does come about for us is we have an opportunity this moment today to dwell on the peace that God offers us. Like we've been talking about all month long, we have these four themes of Advent that we frequently talk about during this time of year. Hope, that you, you know that you know that you know that despite the circumstances that are standing in front of you, you can wait on a person, on a God who came at Christmas and that everything will work out in the end. And it's not wishful thinking. The Bible says it's a deep conviction that fuels your life or love. You can have the hope because love came down and God proved it to you in the coming of Jesus Christ at Christmas. And joy, Josh preached last week, joy is on the way that we can have a deep, a deep happiness that circumstances can't touch because of who Christ is. And in this morning, finally, peace. We're going to see how we get from the manger to world peace. That's the title of the message this morning, From the Manger Until World Peace. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that I know the answer to. Have you ever felt vulnerable or unsafe? That maybe there's images that are coming into your mind about a time in your life where you felt extremely safe, unsafe rather. I can remember a time when I was a kid where uh, my dad came home and told me and told us that he had just been held up at gunpoint uh, behind a convenience store that was local to us. And as he was retelling the story, still shooken up about how everything going on, I just had this overwhelming feeling in my heart that that could have been, that today could have been the day that I lost my dad. And I felt in that moment, I can't imagine what he felt, but I felt in that moment unsafe. I've done some, some ministry in some, some neighborhoods that were, uh, had a lot of struggles. And uh, I heard that the kids in that neighborhood um, actually slept on the floor so they could be below the window in case a gun, in case a bullet came in from a gunshot that night. They lived in an environment where there was no such thing as safety. And they felt the ramifications of that emotionally. And then there's other kinds of peace that we all long for but don't always have. Peace inside of ourselves. A lot of us uh, think about the future and sometimes we get a lot of anxiety. Is this going to work out? How is this going to work out? Can this relationship? There's not a lot of peace sometimes in our own lives between in our relationships with each other. We're at odds with people or, or, or we've, we've hurt people or people have hurt us and there's no peace anywhere. We long for peace. How about in the world? Talk about a pipe dream. I mean, basically all we talk about these days, right, is how much unrest there is in our own country. But think about the global scheme of things. Think about what it would be like to live in China or North Korea or Russia. How's it going in Afghanistan right now when it comes to peace? We don't have it. And there are, so, there are people around the world that, w if they had power, would wipe out our, their enemies. History is riddled with that. Josh mentioned that just a minute ago in the children's sermon. And what I'm going to do today 
is to make you a guarantee. And it's not just coming from me. I don't have that kind of authority. But it's a guarantee that God is going to bring world peace. And you can count on that. And then today, you can also count on the fact that God can bring peace into your world, whatever is going on. Let's look at a prophecy, Isaiah chapter 9. You would turn with me and get your copy of God's Word, and, or whatever you're using to read. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you'll see it printed in your order of worship that you received when you came in the door. Now, I'm going to focus on verses 6 and 7, which is a very popular Christmas passage, but I wanted to read uh, the passage in, in the first um, few verses to give us some context. So I'll begin reading in verse 1. This is God's Word. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of, Na- and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walked in darkness, have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning." And will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we consider your word, as we worship you over your word, simple request that we make and I make now is that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together over your word would be pleasing in your sight and that you would bring your spirit and transformation to our lives as we worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Big idea this morning is simple but profound impact. Christmas should bring peace because a divine king was born. Christmas should bring peace because a divine king was born. Now, when we think of Christmas, when we think of Easter, when we think of Jesus, the frequent image that comes into our mind or the frequent word that we might use to characterize him is Savior, and he is. And at Christmas, the Savior of the world was born. We don't always frequently think about him as more than that, but he was and is. So much more than that. At Christmas, a king was born. The king of the universe 
was born. A king, even though he was born in, in kind of a, a helpless state, this is the king that is going to make all things right. This is the king that's going to vanquish all his enemy. This king offers you safety in a way that no government or entity or power ever can, and he offers it to you forever. That's what happened at Christmas. And one of the things that I hope God does for you as we go through this passage is I hope that you realize that today you can have peace with God. As Josh mentioned again in the children's sermon, there is a war between us and God, and Jesus has come to bring peace to that war. You can have peace with God, and you can also live a life of peace. Three points. What is peace? How does Christmas bring peace? And what does a life of peace look like? What is peace? How does Christmas bring peace? And what does a life of peace look like? Number one, what is peace? Our definition of peace, when we think about peace, very oftentimes what we think about is just the absence of conflict. No war, no fighting. Everyone's getting along. And, and for most of us in the room, all our life, if you lived in this country your whole life, has been, a, a, we've seen national peace. I personally have never lived through a large-scale war that involved the entire nation. I studied wars in, history, in, in, in college when I was a history major. Uh, I studied World War II in particular, and I saw the societal impact that war had. People died, loved ones died, but it also had an impact emotionally on the people who were there and the people who were stayed. It had a financial impact on the people who were there and the people who were stayed. It changed the society as they knew it. That's why they longed for peace. Peace certainly has this definition of the absence of war or no conflict. But the, when the Bible uses the, the word peace, it actually means so much more than that. We'll get to that in just a minute. However, in the context of this passage and in the context of what Jesus ultimately came to do, this imagery of peace from war is something that is definitely promised. In the, this passage, you, uh, this is the pattern of life that, that God's people, the Israelites, lived in, and it's true in the context with which Isaiah is preaching or prophesying, or writing uh, this to them. The pattern that we see all throughout the Old Testament is this. God creates a people, people love God for a minute, and then they turn to the other gods, or they, they sin, they disobey, they prostitute themselves to another god, or they just run away from God entirely, and then God disciplines them like a good father would discipline a son in order to bring them back. And he disciplines them very often using other nations that don't know him to come in and inflict pain so that they would cry out to God, and then he delivers them. You'll see this pattern over and over and over and over and over again. When we went through the book of Judges about a year ago, we saw this cycle as it came. Well, we're in the middle of that again in the book of Isaiah. A lot of the prophets, they're proclaiming, that, hey, stop. Judgment's coming. That's their message. And this, is no, this passage is uh, no different. They're in this pattern of sin. Now, the enemy that they were facing was a nation known as Assyria. They were the dominant militant, military force uh, of the world at the time, specifically this region um, of the war. And Isaiah is prophesying that they're going to come in, they're going to destroy Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom, 
And he's going to take the northern kingdom into exile. And in 722 B.C., that happens. These prophecies come true. The Israelites were terrified, and for good reason. The Assyrians were brutal when it came to war. They were one of the first uh, armies to develop iron tools, so uh, iron weapons, rather. So they had, they had really good weaponry at the time, and they tortured their enemies brutally. So there was a psychological warfare aspect. It was said that they would de-skin some, some of their enemies and drape it all over their cities. They were the Nazis of the ancient world, as one commentator put it. They, if, if you did not give in and become their slaves, they would annihilate you. And everyone knew it. So these God's people are legitimately terrified because Assyria was coming. And they did come. And in the midst of that, Isaiah spends a lot of time saying, y'all stop sinning, cry out to the Lord. But in the midst of that, right now, he gives them this passage of hope. He gives them this prophecy that things are about to get bad because of your sin, but you need to know God has not given up on you. You need to know that this God still loves you and that he is going to make it right. And so this is the prophecy. And in the first few verses, it says a great light is coming. And if things are about to get bad, but eventually you're going to rejoice just like you would if there was a fantastic harvest coming. You will rejoice. God will bring you victory just like he has before. God will crush this enemy and shatter this yoke of oppression that's about to be put on you. You can trust in that. There will come a day, this prophecy says, verse 5, where every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. There will come a day when you don't have to be afraid of Assyria anymore, where you can put your arms down for good. God promises this absence of peace that they would come back. And for that particular nation the Israelites, that promise came true eventually. God promises that eventually Jesus will come back and judge the world and there will be peace forever and ever. Amen. But the Bible also has a, a full, a more full definition of peace that goes beyond just simply the absence of war. The Hebrew word for peace, as some of you may have heard before, is shalom. And it means wholeness completeness, full satisfaction. It means to be whole, okay? Job 5.24, we read, You shall know that your tent is at shalom, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall be at shalom. Your flock will be at shalom because they'll all be there, whole, complete, okay? Inner wholeness, inner peace, inter, inner shalom is also an aspect of, of this word. Exodus 18, 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other about their shalom, and they went into the tent. How are you? Are you at shalom? Are you at peace? Jews, even to this day, greet each other and leave each other with, by saying shalom. May, may God's peace be with you. May you be complete. May you be whole. 
There's relational wholeness. The root word for shalom is another Hebrew word, shalom. And in Exodus chapter 21 and 22, it's fascinating chapters, where, where, where God through Moses is giving them this, the law of how they're supposed to treat each other. And if one person wrongs, if they steal something, or they need to make shalom. They need to make restitution. But the word there is shalom. They need to make it whole again. You broke it. You stole it. Make it whole. Okay? So there was relational wholeness. And then, obviously, one of the main things we're talking about today is wholeness with God. Every time I, I close a service with the, the benediction, I use the benediction from Numbers chapter 6, the Lord turn his face to you and give you shalom. Make you completely whole and at peace. When you think of shalom, I, I'd like for you to think of, of a complex thing coming together. In fact, in Second Chronicles chapter 8, we see that as God talks about the temple. Second Chronicles 8, chapter 16. Thus was accomplished all the work of Solomon from the day the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid until it was finished. All the pieces, gold and silver and, and all the, the wood and the carvings, everything came together. And this is what it says at the end of that verse, verse 18. So the house of the Lord was at Shalom. It was complete. It was, com it was finished. And when you think about Shalom, when you think about what peace is biblically, I want you to think about that. When I'm saying that God offers you peace in your life, He's offering you complete package peace. A relational peace, peace with God, peace with each other, inner peace. All of that is in view. Your life is a complicated web of all kind of things that are broken. Amen? And God promises you that that complex web of things in Christ Jesus will ultimately one day be at shalom. Complete wholeness and peace. It's like a house coming together. And it doesn't take much in a house to make things go wrong. You know, our house just a minute ago, um, we looked up and saw a, a water spot on the ceiling. So we drew a circle around it, see if it got bigger. And so we called our plumber and, you know, cut the hole in, in the ceiling and couldn't figure out where the water was coming from. We were worried about mold and, and couldn't figure it out. And then he eventually found out in our tub upstairs on the overflow, there was a little crack where the guys forgot to put caulk. And that's what was causing the problem. That's how easily the shalom got broken of our house. Could have put the caulk right there. But it messed with us. Did we, we were thinking, do we have mold? What's going on? How are we going to fix this? I mean, it, it messed with us, right? And our lives are the same way. Have one close relationship be out of whack. How do you feel? You feel whole? Nope. Ha have, a, have a doubt. Have a job change, a relational change, a health change, a government change. Wholeness is quickly broken, and we all feel that we are all longing for shalom. And that's what Christ, Christ comes to offer us. For some of you, you've come in this morning, and there, it, there's no doubt. Your life's on fire, and you feel it. you dying for shalom. For others of you, it's a nagging thing can't just put your finger on it, but shalom is broken somewhere, and God offers it to you. Christmas should bring you peace because a divine king was born. What kind of peace? 
Absence of warfare? Absolutely. And also a wholeness. A shalom. Now, second point. How does Christmas bring peace? Again, the problem is that we don't have shalom in our war. We have, in our world. We have war and torture and slavery and injustice and corruption on, on so many de- levels in the world. We see no shalom. And we are at shalom with each other. We have anger and bitterness and lying and cheating, and there's all kind of things. And then there is a cosmic rebellion between us and God. There is an ultimate war between good and evil that is going on that we're not even aware of where there's no shalom. And isn't it interesting, God's solution to this problem of no shalom, massive brokenness, is a, on a huge scale and massive brokenness on a small scale in us. And what's his solution? Verse 6. For to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given. Now, at its face value, I think all of us could agree, that's a bad plan. That you should have come up with something different than that. A baby, all of this, and your solution, the cosmic battle between good and evil is solved by a baby born in a stable and placed in a feeding trough to a low-income family of no influence, kind of wrapped in scandal. That's your solution? But if you're familiar with the Bible at all, if you're familiar with God at all, and maybe you're not, let me inform you, This is how he always works. He always takes the least of these and does profound work because then it's obvious to everybody who did it. It's obvious to everyone. And so that's true for us this morning. God frequently uses an unlikely source to do his greatest, excuse me, his greatest work. And many of us want to be used for God's, but our excuses go something like this. Listen, there's just not much to me. I just don't have much to offer. And and we just say, listen, here's the line. Won't cross it. Can't do that. No, I just don't have it. Guess what? You just gave the perfect resume. You got the job. Because that's how God always works if we're completely yielded to him. In fact, that's how he used Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 34, we looked at this a few weeks ago. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What more evidence do you need that God can use your life if he's going to bring about world peace through a child born in poverty? Namely, the Son of God. I, don't, I can't invent another scenario that should give you more confidence than that. It's an unlikely an unconventional solution. And then secondly, it's a personal solution. Did you catch that when I read it? For to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given for you. Who's the immediate us in this passage? The immediate us were the Israelites. And I already told you their story. They rebelled against God over and over and over and over again. The pattern up until this point was that they were consistent, at least, consistently rebellious against God from generation after generation after generation. And then God says to them, 
before to us a child is born. I know what you've done. I know the full scale of it. And he's still born for you. And the same is true for the eventual us, which is us, in this room right now. You have nothing to offer God. In fact, he hates your sin. And you deserve the full weight of God's wrath. And yet, for to you, a child is born. So that you can have shalom. The personal nature of this solution should inspire us to love God. It should inspire us to serve him. It should inspire us to say, if you love me that much, command what you want. I'm yours. Because a child was born for us. And then thirdly, the solution is a king. The solution is a king. We need a king. We need a good king who's going to bring shalom to the nations that he governs. You see, the Israelite kings in the Old Testament, they were supposed to do that. They were supposed to bring shalom. And they never did. If you read 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the tail end of 2nd Samuel, you'll start to see a pattern develop. Bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king. Over and over and over again. The goal of a king, the reason that God made the covenant with David in the first place, was that there was supposed to be a ruler whose heart was God's that brought shalom to the nations. And it never did. In fact, David's line only actually ever ruled over the entire Israel for two generations before that got messed up and just shalom was broken. These kings actually led people into sin. Didn't bring them into shalom, but brought chaos through their example of disobedience. But not this king. It says, and the government will be on his shoulders, and of the increase of his government and shalom, there will be no end. Let me ask you a question I know the answer to. Are you tired of a corrupt government? A little sick of that? And we got it good, y'all. It ain't great, but we got it real good. How about their context? with Assyria knocking on the door. How in the world is God going to bring shalom to communist China, North Korea, and evil Islamic governments? Yemen, or wherever. How are these governments ever going to be a blessing to their people? They won't. But one day... There's going to come a king, and he will sit, he has come, excuse me, he has come, but he'll come again, and he will sit on his throne, and there will no longer be weak and wicked governments of the world. He'll wipe them off the face of the earth, and they will get what they deserve, and they will feel the white-hot wrath of God, and his army of warrior angels will not be singing joy to the world that day. There'll be a bloodbath. But the result will be that shalom will be restored to the universe forever and ever. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that shalom 
will be yours. From the manger to world peace. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant to David and he says, from your line there will come a king. At the beginning of the New Testament there are genealogies. What's that about? It's about proving that Jesus comes from the line of David and that God does what he always does, kept his word. And that there will be a king from David. And this King will bring justice and righteousness forever, and you don't get to vote for this king. He'll be there regardless. But if you could vote for him, you would. Because this is the kind of king that you want to serve. He does the right thing every time, and untold prosperity and joys fills the lands that he rules. What are the qualifications of this king? who was born for us. It says in verse 7, or excuse me, verse 6, that he's a wonderful counselor. He's an omniscient, all-knowing, all-wise counselor. Solomon's wisdom brought untold prosperity to the Israel. Prosperity that the world has never seen, probably won't ever see again. To that nation. Because he had God's wisdom, Solomon did. Jesus has that wisdom in its fullness. Isn't it sweet to receive good counsel? If you're really struggling with an issue, don't know which way to go, left or right, you're at a crossroads. Or maybe you don't even see the direction at all, it's just everything's foggy. Someone steps in, parts the water, lifts the fog, and there's the way. You have, in Jesus Christ, a wonderful counselor. In Colossians chapter 2, we read that in Christ, in whom all hidden, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's Jesus Christ. All of the wisdom. There is no problem that he cannot help you solve. In fact, a lot of the wisdom is, wisdom is written down for you in this book. It's the word of God. There's no problem that he can't solve. You can trust in the wisdom of King Jesus Christ. You can have peace because you have a wonderful counselor. You can have peace because you have a mighty God. This imagery, uh, the Hebrew word for mighty, carries behind it the idea of a warrior. And you see this all the time in the Old Testament. God as warrior. In fact, in, in Exodus chapter 15, Miriam, who was the worship leader at that time for them, so Laura, you're in good company with Miriam, right? Uh, whenever she was the worship leader for them. Uh, Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, she led them in this song, and this was one of the verses, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. Can you imagine someone writing a praise chorus like that today? You know what I mean? We don't tend to write about God like that. But the Lord is a warrior, and the Lord is his name. But I'll tell you something, if Assyria is knocking on your front door, you're going to sing that chorus, right? The Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. The Lord fights for his people. And every single time Israel went up against an, idiot, uh, uh, an enemy, there were ridiculous odds. In fact, the, the, what's referenced in this passage 
in verse 4, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, is a reference back to Judges chapter 7, when Gideon was leading God's people, and all of the surrounding nations got all their armies together and were going to battle probably hundreds of thousands of skilled trained men, and Gideon gathered together a little 22,000 guys, and God said, too many, whittled it down to 10,000, 10,000 over hundreds of thousands, and God said, too many, whittled it down to 300, and they defeated that massive army without one casualty. 1 Samuel chapter 17, a story that many of you know very well, David and Goliath, young boy fighting against a seasoned warrior. He's small, has no armor, he's nine feet tall, best weaponry known to man at the time. David takes his faith and some rocks and his sling and defeats the enemy. You see, the odds weren't fair in these scenarios. Goliath didn't have a shot. It wasn't fair. Those armies didn't have a shot against Israel. It wasn't fair because the mighty God was fighting on behalf of Israel. There, it wasn't a contest. How can you have shalom? Through faith in Jesus Christ, this mighty God's on your side. In fact, the cosmic battle has been won. Our lives are just picking up the pieces. Everlasting Father. The fatherhood of God is very often portrayed in Scripture as his kind and generous care for the poor and oppressed. Psalm 58, verse 5. A father to the fatherless, defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God cares for even the downtrodden and far away, the sick and sinful. And he will do it forever. Prince of Peace. Prince of Shalom, the one who is going to bring order and completeness and wholeness to our world and can bring order and completeness and wholeness to your life right now. He is the Prince of Shalom. Remember the illustration? That's a temple. That's a house. Your life is a complex order of things coming together and different things are broken at different times. Maybe it's your health or relationships or career or purpose. Um, maybe you've been broken by others or maybe you've broken others and you're dealing with the guilt of that. Or, and most importantly, your relationship with God is broken. The promise of this passage that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ at Christmas time. Christmas was the fulfillment of this when the Prince of Shalom came and he can make all of it whole again and can restore it all. He can make it all right. Now, how do you know he's going to do this? The last part of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. This is beautiful. Don't, don't miss this. What's the certainty that you have? Let's start with them, actually. What's the certainty that they had that this was actually going to happen? The zeal of the Lord. You know, in the Hebrew, it's actually cleanly translated jealousy. This word most often is used as a, jealous, as a, as a husband jealous over his wife. It's the, it's the, the imagery is when your cheeks get red because you're angry. That's God over his people. He is the mighty God 
he will not let his people be taken away from him. What's your guarantee? The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And he always has. No odds too big. The zeal of the Lord. And the same is true for us. This child was born, and he was in the line of David, and he demonstrated himself throughout his life, Jesus did, as a wonderful counselor. He demonstrated throughout his life that he was mighty with all the miracles that he was able to do. The demons, creation, and death all listened to Jesus. He, he showed his compassion like an everlasting father, and he ultimately was the prince of peace and offers an end to the war between you and God through his death and resurrection. As Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can have shalom with God through faith. This is what... This is what the Bible says. Justified through faith, we have peace with God. Believe, trust, surrender. What are you waiting on? Are you going to get a better deal? Peace with God, finally and quickly. What does a life of peace look like? Surrender and trust to God peace inside of you that conquers all other circumstances. That's a part of it. But you can live a life of peace. You know, part of us, we're going to be waiting on Jesus to come back. We're going to be waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy when everything's going to rest on his shoulders. We haven't seen that yet. We've seen a lot of the prom- these promises come true. But we haven't seen the fulfillment of it yet. But it doesn't mean you can't have an a- aspects of shalom right now. Doesn't mean that when you look at the at the future that you can't have peace, like we read about in Philippians chapter four. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and thanksgiving present your requests to God. And then what's going to happen? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding. Ah, that sounds kind of like shalom, doesn't it? Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then the final thing I would say is that God calls us to be peacemakers. In um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called sons of God. You're going to get to do what God did in making peace. We are to make relational peace with each other. You wrong someone, you do the hard thing. And you ask for their forgiveness. And you earn their trust back. Someone wrongs you, you give them forgiveness. You pay the debt, they should pay. Harboring bitterness, you make peace because God made peace with you. And you bring other people to the Prince of Peace. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. You bring other people and let them find shalom with God. Because the message of the gospel is a message of shalom. And you give it out, just like you would a Christmas present. In a few days, that y'all are going to be ripping through some presents, and I can't wait. I can't wait for my kids and other people that 
to open up the, all the presents. I can't wait to get some, some of my presents. That's, I, it's just a few days away. But do me a favor. Open up the present of shalom first today because it's offered to you through the prince of shalom. Christmas should bring you peace. Why? Because a divine king is born. Father in heaven, as we look to you in faith and worship you, as we enjoy this Christmas season, we ask that you would help us through faith, obedience, trust, and surrender to turn to you, the one who bought our shalom with your blood, and find peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.